on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos Welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. A very serious and somber subject on the show today. We have joining us in just a few moments uh, a woman I've come to know only very recently. Her name is Mrs. Rachel Perry. She is the mom of Daniel Perry, the American Army veteran who was convicted by a Texas jury in Austin related to an incident that occurred in Austin during the Black Lives Matter riots of 2020. So what we're going to talk about today is, my topics are, what Soros-funded DAs and Secretaries of State mean for America, interview with Mrs. Perry, mom of Daniel Perry, save American jobs, meet Patriot Switch, and questions for all presidential candidates. <clears throat> presidential candidates. I'll be doing that more next week, but I started to make a list of things that you ought to insist on knowing the answers to for every single presidential candidate at least on the GOP side, who decide, announces they're going to run. But before we turn to the case that we're going to talk about today um, with Mrs. Perry, the mom of Daniel Perry, I want to set the table a little bit. Uh, this, this incident that occurred uh, in Austin uh, a couple of years ago uh, was, a, um, was in July of 2020. It arose out of the or surrounding the riots in America that occurred really throughout 2020 uh, in most major cities, a lot of damage to buildings and, and actually killing of people and burning of cars. It was a very violent year, the, the last year of President um, Trump's first term. And it was, a, um, it was a time of great turmoil in this country. And part of what happened during that time was that there were, um, it seemed to many people, kind of a shift in how uh, prosecutions occurred in our country, how we had essentially in America, we'd always tried to assume, assume that there was a rule of law, one of the most foundational promises uh, in American uh, law, and um, that the idea that their people are guaranteed a fair trial, that they're guaranteed uh, all the rights that they stem from the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. But people began to notice that the violence and rioting that was occurring throughout America really didn't result in uh, prosecutions in, in what seemed to be, would have been, was prosecuted uh, if, if the people who were doing the protests uh, were on the conservative side. Uh, you know, we've been featuring January 6th defendants in this show recently, talking about nearly, you know, completely not violent, merely entering and leaving uh, the Capitol, prompting the um, arrest and prosecution of now over a thousand Americans. And people are getting concerned that our justice system in America is, has become politicized, that there is a political motivation behind decisions of whether to prosecute and when to prosecute. And I want to just, and, and part of that has occurred in uh, America uh, because of 
people who were who ran for office, who became prosecutors uh, around the country, uh, having been funded by George Soros and one of his many, uh, you know, entities. George Soros has kind of a core group that he funds. You know, he's this multi, multi, multi-billionaire, massive uh, core group he runs, and they fund a, you know, kind of a, a circle around them of, of other groups, and then those groups fund other groups. But what we have found out, and people paying attention have found out, is that George Soros has worked very hard to put prosecutors in place in jurisdictions around this country who are sympathetic to his left-wing take-down-America agenda. He sells his agenda on the idea of social justice, just trying to make things fairer. But the outcome of the, uh, the if you can just look at the numbers and look at the studies that are happening, uh, the outcome of those cases is uh, those jurisdictions where Soros funded prosecutors win election is you begin to see a loss of the rule of law. You see announcements by, I should realize my microphone got moved. Sorry. There we go. Um, hope you, were they hearing all that? Okay, good. Um, sorry, we've been shifting papers around here. So what you see in those, in those jurisdictions where George Soros uh, has been successful in placing prosecutors in place, you know, some of these things, they are all harmful, but there's less willingness to prosecute people who commit petty crimes, even crimes of theft, even small violent crimes, as long as no one dies. So we have a, we have a, a slotting scale of justice, which pretty much means if you're in, a Soros, in an area where a Soros-funded prosecutor is, has the job of prosecuting, you know, you're not going to get prosecuted for stealing, for theft, in some jurisdictions up to $1,500 worth of theft. Uh, you're going to be released on your own recognizance, even though what you did was very violent and you actually shouldn't be let out of jail at all. We've just seen a shift away from the rule of law and a sense in America of the of a safety of the community because of what George Soros prosecutors are doing. I'll give you just a quick sample of them. In fact, I linked this on our website today at americacanwetalk.org. I linked this article, the list of prosecutors backed by George Soros are causing murder and crime to soar. It is not speculative. It's not just a, you know, kind of un unbased argument. It is you can look at the, the list of prosecutors are now in the dozens in large jurisdictions around this country who are motivated by a political agenda, which is a <clears throat> excuse me, radical left-wing agenda. Uh, it is to push, it really, the real intent of it, regardless of how he describes or defends it, the real intent is to cause chaos and division in America. It's really to bring down the, the breaking down of society in America, to cause chaos, uh, disruption, uh, it is to cause people to live in fear. It is, a, it is a radical left agenda, all supported by him because he is part of the whole socialist movement in this country. So you can, I urge you to read this article I, I linked to because I can't regale you with all the details now, but I will tell you, if you look at the jurisdictions where his prosecutors are in charge, people he funded to run uh, for office, you see murder rates are going up, crime rates are going up. People are moving out of those cities because they're afraid to live there. They're afraid to what, what might happen to them uh, should they stay. In fact, right here where the show is being done in Dallas County, we have a, a Soros uh, DA here named John Crusoe. He is, you know, just a, um, won't prosecute small crime. We have crime going up in Dallas, even in areas where there previously was not crime. We have more brazen crime because there's a rising sense among those lured into lawlessness that is not going to matter. They won't get in trouble. 
Well, in particular in Austin, Texas, during the BLM riots, uh, there was this episode we'll be talking about today. We have the mom in the studio, Mrs. Perry, the mother of uh, Daniel Perry, who was, was at the time uh, in the Army, and he was also, to earn extra money, driving an Uber at night in Austin. And the episode, we'll break down in a moment with Mrs. Perry, uh, resulted in after he was accosted, surrounded, um, caused a, and, and had a gun pointed at him, shot in self-defense to protect his own life, preserve his own life. And because he chose to preserve his own life, he was prosecuted by one of these Soros prosecutors whose name is Jose Garza. This Austin, Texas is in the um, county of Travis. It's Travis County, Texas. Honestly, Austin is kind of like the San Francisco of Texas. It's just radically left. And so you have this prosecutor, Jose Garza, who decided not to prosecute uh, anyone else who surrounded uh, Daniel Perry's car, not to prosecute the um, individuals who were behaving in a threatening manner, and not even to prosecute the person who fired a gun at and hit his car, uh, Daniel Perry's car, but instead just chose to, uh, he did get a grand jury indictment, but he chose to go to a grand jury with this uh, plan to prosecute Daniel Perry for murder, and he did receive a, uh, the, he was indicted uh, by that grand jury. Part of what we'll be talking about, which is among the many bases of appeal that should be successful if we can count on a rule of law in the Texas courts, part of the basis of the appeal relates to a decision that was made by this Soros-funded prosecutor, Jose Garza, to withhold certain evidence from the grand jury and ultimately from the jury itself. And this evidence, uh, to use one of my, I used to work in a big law firm and one of my partners, one of his favorite terms is, isn't that dispositive? I mean, doesn't that solve the whole thing? And it did. If you used to hear what was withheld from the jury by this lead prosecutor, and withheld at the direction and instruction of the Soros-funded DA, I think that alone is grounds for the reversal. A couple other quick things before we get into talking with Mrs. Perry. One is that at the federal level, we talked many, many times in the cases involving January 6th defendants who are being prosecuted in federal court. So in Washington, D.C., federal court prosecutions over January 6th, many references to the Brady Rule. The Brady Rule emerged um, as a matter of interpreting constitutional law under the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, which basically is an amendment that tells you you have a right to a fair trial. And then that right to a fair trial is embellished with all sorts of details. You know, an actually competent counsel, an impartial jury, many other things are required. The Brady Rule, which is absolutely in place in federal uh, litigation, federal prosecutions, basically says, if you are the prosecutor and you have information, the term is exculpatory. If you have information, if you have evidence that is exculpatory, meaning if it would cause a jury, not, I mean, certainly if it would prove the innocence of the person that you are prosecuting, but even less than that, it doesn't have to prove their innocence, just evidence that would be relevant to a jury's consideration of whether or not to convict someone on one or more charges with which they are charged, you have a duty as the prosecutor to turn that evidence over to the defense lawyers. You have a duty to have the defense lawyers be, be given that information. So, but that's federal courts. Here in the great state of Texas, I went to the Texas Bar uh, website today, uh, the Texas Bar Rule 3.09D, if you want to look it up yourself, 
I don't think I linked this on the website, but I could. Uh, Texas Rule 3.09D, Texas Disciplinary Rules of Professional Conduct, and 3.8D, Model Rules of Conduct. Short story is, Texas claims that they actually have a more, a more um, uh, strict rule about Brady, a, a bigger obligation, a, a, a broader um, obligation of prosecutors to share evidence with the uh, the defense about what they know about this case that could be exculpatory, could help get, uh, hopefully get uh, somebody else, uh, some, some really what it is to give the defendant a fair trial, which is required by the Sixth Amendment. Uh, the last thing I'll do before turning to Mrs. Perry is, you may see the argument made on all sorts of social media, and I see it too. You see the argument made that, and, and the conservatives will say, you know, somehow we have a horrible justice system, that this justice system is off track because we have all of these, you know, January 6th defendants who did little more than go to Washington, D.C. and stand on public property and, you know, pray for their country or, you know, showed up and went in the Capitol because the doors were being held open by police officers. Those people are being prosecuted, I mean, with a vengeance that is in unparalleled in American history. Over 1,000 people prosecuted by, in Washington, D.C. by the DOJ, another 1,000 promised by the DA, DOJ still coming. And yet you see all the Black Lives Matter protests that occurred around 2020, all over America, 2021, and Antifa protests, and very little. Um, it seems like the standard of justice is different as to what get you, gets you prosecuted. And then you will see arguments, and the reason I wanted to raise this is, you will see arguments, you see headlines on, uh, online when you try to research saying, that's not true. You know, there were thousands of arrests related to you know, these protests. Thousands of protesters of January 6th people got arrested. And it's one of those things that's technically true, but it's a lie. Because what they did, the prosecutors did, in many cases, the police did, was they arrested people. So there were a fair number of arrests, not as many as would have happened had the protesters been conservatives, but there were a fair number of arrests. But what happened was, after the arrests are taken off the streets, and then the prosecutor declines to file charges, to press charges, the police conclude there was a bad arrest, shouldn't have done that, let them go. The point is, the number of prosecutions leading to actual jury trials, convictions, and jail time is starkly different between people who did basically nothing wrong January 6th um, and people around this country who engaged in astonishing levels of violence, which our country just decided to tolerate. And that whole attitude spilled over even into way the local DAs chose to interact, chose to file charges, especially now in this case, we're going to turn to Mrs. Perry uh, and what happened uh, to her son um, in the... Um, in Austin on July, it was on July 25th, 2020, a Black Lives Matter protest was unfolding uh, in the city of Austin. Quick before I bring Mrs. Perry on, Mr. Emilio, I sent you, you have those clips? Okay, I just wanna show you a picture of what Austin looked like. This is not the incident involving Daniel Perry, but just what the streets of Austin looked like in this protest in July of 2020. Downtown that weekend. In downtown, so oh, there you go. There you hear it. Another firework. Right there. started late Friday night when a crowd unexpectedly showed up. I mean, you are taking a live look at the headquarters. There, the windows are all boarded up this morning. Since we've been here, the crowd has doubled and maybe even tripled. There's a lot of problems that's consistently happened to us, and we're tired of being ignored. There have been a number coming here to join the protest, spreading. They 
are now on the main lanes of Interstate 35. This video you're seeing here was pretty earlier in the day. Many of the protests started peacefully with a clear message of hope. But as the day wore on and the sun went down, tensions rose. A car under I-35 downtown and a dumpster on 6th Street were both lit on fire last night. And then people started looting a business on 6th Street. So that was what's happening in Austin uh, in 2020. Now I'd like to introduce and welcome to our show, Mrs. Rachel Perry. Hello. Hi. Hi, Mrs. Perry. Thank you for being here. I know you um, uh, were not up until this time a um, person politically active, involved in all this or not, but your son, Daniel Perry, uh, was involved in an incident in Austin in July, on July 25th of 2020. We're going to go into what happened in his case and whether America and the state of Texas complied with the basic standards we require uh, in terms of fair treatment and fair trial. But let's just start with, tell our listeners a little bit about your son, like his background before this incident. My son, um, he has been um, an Eagle Scout. Um, he did that before the age of 18. He was kind of aimless as, in, as reached adulthood. He went to college for two years. And then we decided to kind of make him make a decision about his future, and he decided to join the military. And he's been in the military 12 years. Um, he was currently active duty when this incident happened. He has um, never had any incidents, violence incidents in his history. He's never been in protest. He's never been, you know, just against violence, period, and looting. Um, and I truly believe that um, he's innocent. He's just self-defense. The whole incident is just about self-defense. The whole case is about self-defense. I do want to, um, so very quickly, so your son, where he was, uh, he was still in the military, yes. active military at the time, yes. Army. Army. And how many years had he been? 12 years. 12 years. And he was stationed at or based in a nearby- Fort Hood. Fort Hood, but not living on the, on the Fort no, Hood premises. No, he wasn't living on the premises. They messed up his pay. And so to earn extra money, because they didn't have any um, housing on the post, they messed up his pay, so he had to earn extra money, and he decided to go Uber. Now, Colleen is not a good place to make money, so he decided to go to Austin. And he's been doing this. He's done it previous weekends, and he was just basically going up there for the weekends to be an Uber driver. Okay, so he's in. He's still in the military. He's yes. Uber driving at night to make extra money. Kind of bad if our military has to earn extra money. That's something <laughs> wrong with that. But um, I do want to get into what happened that day. So on, on July twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and I know. Let me just say we I've acknowledged to our audience that this gentleman, Daniel Perry, uh, was convicted um, involving a shooting, which appears from the facts I can tell and what you hear from Mrs. Perry to have been utterly done in self-defense, normally never charged and certainly not in the great state of Texas, uh, but he was charged and ended up being convicted a guilty verdict on April 7th of this year, 2023, uh, and sentenced to 25 years. So I want to get those facts Absolutely. out. And now I want to go back and talk about, have you tell, just because you attended the trial, listened to the evidence, uh, what happened that day from his perspective? My son, um, he was dropping off people and picking people up. Um, he had an incident where he picked up this lady uh, from a previous ride and he dropped her off. And this lady um, was trying to solicit sexual favors for him. And so what she had, I know, I know it's crazy, but she asked, you know, for $200, want to meet up? He said, you sure, but for $200, no, I don't do that. And while he was texting her back, he made a turn onto Congress, 
not really paying attention to what was happening in front of him. And um, at that time, he ran into the protest. Okay, let me back up. So he's driving the Uber, Direction. but there's no other passenger in the car. No. Driving the Uber, himself. going along, and he's texting, and yes. he made a turn. Turned on the right. It was a red light, and he turned on red. He turned right on red. Turned right on okay. red, but he didn't stop, I don't think. But he turned right on red, and he um, was stopped because of the people that were pedestrians that were in the road. So and the pedestrians in the road were, were uh, BLM protesters. Yes, correct. There was a big protest going on down there. Okay. Yes. So, it, and do you... Or know from whatever you heard, learned about it. Do you know how fast he was going turning that corner? He's going less than six miles an hour. Less than six. Yes. Turning a corner right turn, on red, turn yes. onto Congress. Okay. So he turns on to Congress and Stopped. there are Black Lives Matter protesters Stopped. there. He stopped. He stopped. Okay. He stopped um, because he saw pedestrians in front of him. And as he stopped, the car was surrounded. They were shaking his car. The protesters his car. were shaking his car. The, okay. They were beating on his car. They were kicking his car. And then out of the crowd came Garrett Foster carrying an AK-47 in a low-ready position. As he approached the vehicle, he was less than 18 inches away from the vehicle. He started rising his vehicle towards Daniel. Rising his AK-47, yes, um, towards Daniel. And Daniel saw that happening, and he took his gun and shot Garrett Foster. Okay, let me just jump in. So you picture he's in the car. It's already been surrounded by protesters yes. who are banging on the car, yelling yes. at him. And I think you told me earlier, and please correct me if I'm yes. wrong, Garrett Foster asked him to roll the window yes, down? Yes, correct. And he did. So he rolled the window down in response. And, and I guess Garrett Foster, he wasn't sure at that point if Garrett Foster was a, was a protester police, or a police, police officer? Yeah, he was not sure. He was just approached by this guy in camouflage vest. He had a, uh, a vest on him to protect himself, I guess, for weapons. Um, he, as he approached him, um, Daniel saw that he had an AK-47 in a low-ready position pointing downwards, slinged across the front of him. As he raised the weapon slowly, Daniel panicked and shot this guy five times. Okay. I want to get clear with something. The low-ready position. I, I'm not a gun person, really. I'm in favor of Second Amendment. Love the Second yes. Amendment. But... So low ready means that this, the AK-47 is over his shoulder and Point, it's pointed down. Yes, his hand's on the trigger. But his and hand's the, on the trigger. And the other hand on the barrel. And he was raising it up slowly. Okay, raising Daniel. up slowly. And this is when your son, seeing this, and this guy was yes. pretty much right outside the driver's window. 18 inches away. 18 exactly. inches away. You see someone with AK-47. And you know, also, your son having military training, I, I have never had military training, I would assume they are taught to understand when they might be in danger. Absolutely, because he did uh, service in Afghanistan, Germany, and Poland prior to this. Okay. So he was ready. He was ready to protect himself and protect his comrades around him. Okay, so I, I actually, I'm sorry I didn't mention that earlier. So his previous military service included Afghanistan it, and Germany and, and, and Poland. Else? And Poland. Okay, so he's actually served America's military, still in the military, and down the Uber in Austin, he sees someone 18 inches away, AK-47, which is a very large weapon, yes. and he and you use the term ready position, and that just means it's, it's held in a way you're ready to use it if Absolutely. you're going to use it. You're, so he sees the elbow moving? Is yes, that... the elbow was raised. This picture still photographs of Garrett Foster's elbow. Ray, the weapon must have been up in the air if the elbow was raised, okay. pointing towards my son. And so your son then shot? Yes. Okay. 
And shot what he believed was self-defense. Yes. Here's it was. Okay, so then what happened? And then my son, shortly after the shooting, the crowd dispersed. My son um, wanted to leave the area so he can call the police. As he was leaving the police, one of the protesters shot three times in his vehicle. This is, mind you, this car is like maybe two and a half, three months old. Um, the vehicle that he uh, actually, you know, had holes in it. He went around the corner and called the police and notified what actually happened. Okay, so as your son's pulling away, yes. shots are fired. Yes. Which, and then he pulls over and he calls the police. Yes. And so he basically wasn't trying to run and get no, away. No, he wasn't. He was turning himself, I'm not turning sure. himself in, he's letting the police know what happened. Absolutely. And the police okay. came really shortly afterwards. They um, brought him in, they interrogated him, and then they released him. So he went back to the military, he went back to Black. Uh, Alaska. Uh, he was transferred to Alaska at that time, um, and he has been in Alaska for about two years since the shooting. That's where he was stationed at. So he was in the army. They sent him back to Alaska. So the first round of the police investigating, they they obviously Released concluded self defense. No, we had to pay for of course we had to pay for a bond to have him released. Yeah, and it was three hundred thousand dollar bond that we had to pay for to get him released, and um, and he was serving still in the military. Okay, so then the next thing you, at some point, he's notified by this Soros-funded DA, yes. Jose Garza, that they are considering charges. Yes, and then the grand jury in, uh, was met, met um, by Zoom at that time. And after the grand jury, they indicted him for and murder. The indictment, I, I looked up, indictment was July 2nd, 2021. Absolutely. So he's indicted then, and he finally went to trial in early this year, April yes. 2023. Yes. Okay. And this jury in Austin convicted him um, on May 10th. Absolutely. No, May 7th, I think. May 7th. Okay. Friday. I don't know. Anyway, know. so I'm, I'm getting at the point that it, it was at least at the time of the questioning when he turned himself in yes. the police, they didn't say, you know, they didn't charge him then. They didn't. I mean, no. it was a decision, it appears, that, you know, this was an unfortunate incident, but appears to have been self-defense. Yes. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. The police all say it was self-defense. Um, Detective Fugit said it was self-defense. Well, we're going to get into Detective Fugit in just yes. one moment. Okay. Uh, so I want to make sure on, on those facts, and you, I think you told me earlier, but just to be clear, in this instance, you had police, you had protesters rocking the car. Yes. You saw the videos earlier, mobs in the street rocking the car, and they ended up having a, um, uh, and what we just described occurred. Yeah. Do you know if any of the individuals who surrounded his car and were smashing on his car and, and hitting yes. the car were any of them arrested no none of them were arrested not even the man that shot at his car three bullets not even the one who shot the car after he pulled after away he pulled away okay so the only one involved in this is the one it was your son involved in being charged was your son absolutely okay it's my son okay and you know i think you know to my sense i will tell you i am a lawyer by background but i uh I never even pursued getting a license in the state of Texas. I got licensed in Washington, D.C., where I went to law school, California, where I was a litigator. I never did criminal law, but I did study criminal procedure and criminal law, and I've read a lot to prepare for today's interview because I really want, I mean, I read enough to understand sure. some things were withheld from the jury. Absolutely. To the point that they were not hearing, uh, it's, it's beyond exculpatory. To be really clear, the thing I was saying earlier exculpatory evidence it is the duty of the prosecutor to turn over sure. whether to to the defense but the brady rule just relates to what you have to turn over it doesn't um relate to what the judge 
must rule yes. in, in the middle of trial as to whether something's admissible. Yes. So do you know whether everything that this, so I'll quickly for our listeners, so there's the lead detective, David Fugit, lead detective in the Austin Police Department who did the investigation, led the investigation, has come out after the trial to say that he was told by this prosecutor by the the Soros-funded Garza prosecutor uh, to withhold evidence from the grand jury. He was told to reduce the number of slides he created trying to present the case from 158 slides down to only 56 slides. So he's basically being told as the police, um, the lead investigator by the DA, don't let the grand jury see this. Absolutely. Now I'll take it off. So let's just, I mean, there were a, a many, many things in the trial that were not admitted um, and seemed to have resulted in kind of a, it seemed like a just determined prosecutor saying, I'm going to get this guy. And in fact, absolutely, didn't he run on that? Yes, he ran on that. He ran uh, on the fact that he's going to be uh, getting justice for the foster family. Um, this is the prosecutor who, because at the time the incident occurred, yes. Garza wasn't prosecutor. No, he wasn't. The and DA was going out and he didn't want to deal with the case because his time was short. So the outgoing DA didn't didn't go for the case. Yes. Incoming DA, and he ran on, I'm going to get justice Ab for this yes. Garrett Foster's family. Yes, absolutely. That's how it was run, the, the, this campaign. And um, also... Um, uh, our our um, attorneys uh, was able to subpoena some records and part of it you can discuss about the Air Force records and, and uh, media yeah. records that we were able to obtain at you know at the trial and after the trial okay uh, we're gonna get into all that I will say that uh, and I first want to talk about Fugit David Fugit because he 30 years go ahead he did 30 years of service honorable service really well respected in Austin 30 years, Austin Police Department lead investigator, and he went public after this conviction to yes. say too much information was withheld from the jury, yes. withheld from the grand jury. Absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Let's just talk about then, you know, what happened in trial, what kinds of things were withheld from the jury that may have swayed. I mean, and I should say this, at the end of the day, the jury has to decide beyond a reasonable doubt whether or not the crime that the the shooting that occurred that day constituted legitimate self-defense or did it constitute murder did it, intentional killing and unjustified intentional killing so they have to have beyond a reasonable doubt conclusion yes. that your son had no reason to be concerned about this guy with ak-47 18 inches from his head absolutely that's what they decided and and they also decided that a lot of evidence were not permissible and that's the uh, judge uh Clifford Brown, and he um, evidently did not permit a lot of the evidence to be admitted. Let's talk about some of the evidence that wasn't admitted. Some of it relates to the uh, to Garrett Foster, absolutely, who was, who was the one who had the AK-47, uh, as Daniel Perry says, you know, li lifting it up, aiming, and he was the one who was shot and killed that day. So, what was withheld in the testimony uh, from the jury from Gar about Garrett Foster? Garrett Foster, um, he was an Air Force veteran. He got discharged from the Air Force. He had um, been uh, suicidal during his service during that time. So he was hospitalized for suicidal ideation. And the Air Force determined that under no circumstances should he ever own a weapon or possess a firearm of any kind because he was a danger to himself and others. 
And that's what commits you to a hospital that's psychiatric or a psychiatric okay. unit. I want to jump in and make very sure for our listeners, we are not, what we're talking about now is the, the guy who was carrying, who was participating in the Black Lives Matter protest, yes. carrying an AK-47, according to Daniel Perry, lifted it up, tore in a position to shoot him 18 inches away. That guy carrying AK-47, he's the one dismissed from the Air Force and hospitalized for suicidal ideation and danger to himself and others. He's on the streets carrying AK-47. Was he supposed to be able to have a gun? No, he wasn't. He actually lied in his application because the application clearly states that if you are using drugs uh, or you have any history of mental illness, yeah. you are not allowed. And he did not answer the questions honestly. Um, I'm not here to convict Garrett Foster. I'm just saying the facts that were withheld from the jury. I was going to say that, yeah, relevance to us is the jury never heard about that. Never. Which would cause you to start to question what was he thinking that day? You know, what was Garrett Foster thinking? How likely is it he might have lifted the AK-47 to aim at someone he doesn't know? And there were previous incidences also that were with help of him doing the same thing to other drivers, you know, through his, other, his history of marching, you know. Uh, okay, that's another to, to repeat in case we're do not be clear. The gentleman who uh, lost his life that day, Garrett Foster, also had done the same confrontational behavior to other drivers, other people, motorists going through and- and That was reported to the police department. Reported to the police, done. but not admitted to the jury. Correct. And Absolutely. so if it was reported to the police, it's because drivers were saying this man behaved in a threatening manner. Absolutely. So the jury wasn't allowed to hear it. The same guy, they're trying to decide did he behave in a threatening manner and they weren't allowed to hear he'd been doing that. I mean, I, I understand the legal weapon. issues about whether that was, but I mean, the idea that the jury couldn't get a picture. They, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also want to, uh, on him, um, same guy, Garrett Foster, the, the one who uh, was killed that day. He also had um, had an interview on in the media that day. Correct. Want to tell about that? He, um, he was interviewed by the media um, and he was carrying his weapon in the low ready position. And he was asked by the reporter, why are you carrying the weapon like that? And he, his indication was uh, that uh, he wants to protect the people who he's protesting with. And that, um, and also, uh, he also stated that he was um, calling um, the people who would have confronted him with the weapon as pussies. And the police officers, um, they were just antagonizing them, you know, and so he wanted to prevent that from happening. That's why he carried the weapon around with him. So the one who had the AK-47, uh, as your son alleges, aimed at his head, had been earlier in the day answering media questions saying, yeah, yes. um, you know, I have this gun because I'm basically trying to protect the people I'm with and, yes. and using a crass term to describe people who may not support them. But he also was using... Um, his fiance, wife, girlfriend, I mean, she was she had different adjectives to their relationship as um, he would push her through the crowds or oh, two she vehicles. Was in a wheelchair. Yeah. She was in a wheelchair. He would push her in the wheelchair towards the crowd. She was carrying a, a trans flag. That was determined also. In, in, okay, in well, you know, that pointing and pushing people out of the way with the flag is him propelling her towards people who were, might have interfered with the protest. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was going to ask you, so in the time your son was in this, uh, turning the corner onto Congress, 
did you, are you aware of any police presence in that area? There were police present in that area. How close? They were close enough that they were observing for something like this to happen. There was vans, uh, there was a white van that follows them around and one of the, the, um, the protesters uh, referred the white van as a kidnap van because if any protesters get out of hand, they were put in that van uh, and taken away okay. from us. To your knowledge, did any of the police who were fairly close by, did they approach the protesters as they surrounded your yes. son's car? Did they try to pull the protesters away or say stop? Um, they, they weren't that close, but they were there within minutes. Like they, they were observing the corners. I mean, this happened in the corner. There were cameras, there were city cameras that, that showed, you know, the, the protesters, um, what they had done. There was cameras showing the shooting itself. And um, so, okay, so didn't this, this lead, before I forget, on this lead detective in, in the case, David Fugit, who's really, after the incident occurred, the trial, after the conviction yes. occurred, he filed something trying to say that this prosecutor, yes. uh, Garza, was not, was actually had committed a crime himself by his withholding Absolutely. of evidence. Absolutely, he was withholding the crime, uh, the, the incident, because he was the first investigator, Officer Fugit was the first investigator on the scene. So the forensics, everybody was there, and he was the one that was actually there. You know, he, it was his night to be yeah. there. And so he saw from the beginning, gathered all the evidence, gathered all the information that he needed to know to whether to pursue this with an arrest, um, to, to report what he had seen, and 900 pages of information he acquired. Yeah, the 900-page report, again, by Fuji is after the conviction. Yeah. And, and he's trying to call into question the actual, it was he during, claimed. It was he, during the, re, that was the initial report, 900 pages. So after the oh, conviction. Oh, of, of the incident, Absolutely, pages. yes. Okay, didn't David Fugit say at some point that the things that were withheld would have caused people to conclude he shouldn't be, your son should not be prosecuted? Absolutely. Okay, so the main guy who's there witnessed it, the first one there, he's saying if the j grand jury or the jury got to see everything I saw, yes. there wouldn't be a reason for prosecution. Yes. But he, information was held back by Garza, the sure. DA, Yes. And, and then the grand jury can only look at what they have presented Absolutely. and the jury can only look at what they're presented with. That's all they can do. And one of the jurors, I don't know if you want to mention this, but one of the jurors actually, um, we filed for misconduct. Okay, we're gonna get to that yeah, in one minute. Sure. Okay, you know what, I, I am watching the time too. We need a magic time machine in the studio. I'm telling my producer here, we need a magic time machine because I can see what's gonna happen. We're running out of time and I wanna be sure to get to all these points. But I do wanna have, I mean, I think that fact alone, if you are an appellate court looking at this case and you're realizing that the main investigator, he found the judge's conduct so egregious, excuse me, the district attorney's conduct so egregious that he actually sought to have criminal charges against yes. the DA to say, you can't hide evidence like this. You can't hide exculpatory evidence. And the He's, DA brought about the firing of this officer. Absolutely. And this officer still is working in Austin, but that ended his career and as his a career. lead detective. Okay. Um, and then, I, I mean, <laughs> it's a staggering case. Okay. Let's turn to the other, uh, the other um, jury misconduct issue or the jury misconduct issue you mentioned. Um, and you can just go ahead and tell the story, what you know of it. Um, what I know of it is one of the jurors uh, decided to do his own research, and this was between the prosecution's... Um, resting his case. Resting his case and ours beginning. It's right in the middle. And so this 
juror decide to do his own research and wanted to find um, the law. And he Googled something that stated that it is up to the defense to prove innocence rather than the prosecution to find guilt. So on that premise, the jury listened to our case from the defense side with that in mind. And um, they proceeded to make him guilty because he, he assumed that was the evidence was legitimate that this juror presented. Now we filed for mistrial and the judge says no because it didn't happen during deliberations, you know, guilt or innocence at the end of the trial. So he totally dismissed that. And the juror was um, interviewed by the judge himself prior to sentencing. Okay, so I'm gonna just encapsulate that again. During the course of the trial, prosecution yes. rests their case. They have to go first in criminal case. Yes. The, a juror had done research on their own and come up with the completely false conclusion that in this case, it was the duty of the defendant, the accused, to prove their innocence, which would be an absolute abandonment of the presumption of innocence. You know, the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. But he, this juror had shared that with the other jurors. Absolutely. He so, shared it because the paper. He had the actual the, the paper that he copied from the computer you know the i'm sorry if a newspaper printed this you're saying no no he, he actually printed this off the computer and submitted oh, it to the so and brought it in for the jury to see absolutely okay that's what he so the jury's heard this yes and you know it's very true that uh at the end of a trial you know the judge gives jury instructions yes. and they give instructions uh, very specifically whether it's a civil or criminal case they run through especially a criminal case here's what you must find and he describes the elements and each one must be found beyond a reasonable doubt and so maybe the judge is thinking, well, even if this juror yeah. says something incorrect, yes. like the defense has to prove his innocence, that the jury really could have been disabused of that notion because he gave instructions to the jury, uh, which, which he, I mean, it is, that is, that is uh, to me, the most screaming level example of, ju of just jury misconduct. Absolutely. And also the judge before every, every, uh, break that they had, he mentioned, do not go on the internet, do not do any uh, social media, she stay away from the press, and that juror did the total opposite, and God knows how many other jurors did the same thing, I don't know, I don't have any evidence of that, but I'm just saying that whenever there was a break in the day, the judge, obviously nobody listened to him, you know, uh, which makes sense, do not look at in the, in any papers, any social media, do not interact with the the, the, the news. And uh, evidently that was okay. Yeah. That was fine. You can do your own research during a trial. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not okay. And again, you know, I, I've been trying to talk about this idea a lot on this show recently, which is I talk quite often, and, and I know many, many people do, but we're concerned with really the breakdown of rule of law in America. We're concerned about whether or not the premises of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, especially in this case, the Sixth Amendment, that guarantees you absolutely an impartial jury and a fair trial, which, by the way, the uh, that is part of that on the federal level is the idea that when you know you are when surrounded by a jury that is not impartial as you are in washington dc they're 94 percent democrat they're all anti-trumpers and yet every january 6th juror uh, every january 6th case is being tried in front of juries that are they're all anti yes. what these protesters believe in 
And I don't have the exact analogy to make to the Austin jury, but Austin is very liberal. It is known to be very liberal. They, they continue. I mean, they elected Garza, I guess. I mean, unless it was election fraud, they elected Garza, a guy who's running on, you know, kind of anti-police. In fact, I want to throw in some. It's a good point to do this. So part of what uh, Garza did, you know, he ran on this idea. He was going to find justice for Garrett Foster's family. So he was going to go after and charge uh, Mrs. Perry's son, Daniel Perry. Uh, he also announced, and I think it was in 2022, I'm not sure what, I don't have the exact date right here, but uh, the DA, Don, this Garza Soros-funded DA announced that he was going to an, indict, go after 19 police officers, that he wanted them indicted and prosecuted over what he characterized as their you know, um, too rough, too uh, brute, whatever his word was, you know, they were, um, they were too harsh in how they treated the uh, protesters in the 2020 protests, in the, in the George Floyd protests that proceeded from uh, the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis. So he, this DA, has indicted 19 police officers, which is a pretty big wide swath of police officers, uh, and caused great confusion in the media because he announced it before he had indictments, and so these people were all relieved of their jobs. And you begin to see what happens when you, you have agenda-driven attorneys, agenda-driven prosecutors. They are deciding it's more important to fulfill my commitment to the voters, my commitment, I'm going to go after the police. I'm, I mean, he's a, you know, the mindset of defund the police or, you know, reduce their power. And so it's another indicia of how he sees the world. His job is to make police look bad. So I don't know what's happened in those cases. I could try to follow up on all of them. But there's a lot of mindset about the prosecutor himself that plays Absolutely. into all of this, plays into all of it. Absolutely. I was going to read one little quote, by the way. Yes. Um, this is from, again, this Travis County um, lead investigator, the police detective, who is trying to point out, and this guy's name is David Fugit, trying to point out, he did a long affidavit pointing out things like having several conversations with the district attorney's office regarding evidence that could have been favorable to Perry but it became clear to me that the DA's office did not want to present this evidence, ordered to remove more than 100 slides from his presentation, and he felt like he had no other option but to comply with their orders. So you have a, um, I, mean, I mean, there are examples I could read, but this is, it, it's prosecutorial bias to a point, he was just kind of trying to conclude, you know, there's a, uh, we're, we're gonna get this guy and we're not gonna let evidence be heard by the grand jury or the jury that might allow them to get a fuller picture of what occurred that night. Okay. I think you I might have interrupted picture. you. Do you have another point you want to go to? You have the perfect picture. You did a great job, you know. Well, good. Okay. Thank you. Um, so is your son, so conviction has occurred. So the, is it on appeal? Yes. My son's still in Travis County Jail because it's a misdemeanor charge. Um, I think it's an uh, endangerment or something like that because he drove his vehicle, not knowing there was a protest, because this protest was not sanctioned by the police. There was no permit for it. So my son had no idea this was happening. And the premeditation is absurd because my son does not follow protests. He does not, I mean, he was just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he ran up wrong upon a person who doesn't want anything to do with this prosecution uh, misdemeanor charge. Um, she said that her life was not in danger. And she said that, you know, she doesn't want to, she lives in Pennsylvania right now.
the one that supposedly my son tried to run over. He was going six miles an hour. He couldn't run over Six anything. miles an hour. Six yeah, miles an hour. Yeah, couldn't have been trying. Okay, um, I want to hit two other points, making myself little notes here. Uh, one is, I know that in the course of this trial, there were social media uh, postings by your son that were ex the jury was exposed yes. to, and you know they were they were I will say critical of Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know which right. a lot of people are critical of Black Lives Matter movement. Um, they they were social media posts that may have convinced the jury that you know what his motive was in the time he entered, and that's it, it was just one sided. They only let them present. The jury only saw Daniel's responses to what the other soldiers were saying. The soldiers were of all colors. It wasn't racially motivated, his responses. It was just, there was a conversation. Yeah, I mean, my son is, a, we're Jewish. And so my son was told um, that, you know, uh, your people are going to be burnt. Let's burn your Jews or something like that. And he responded, well, you know, I mean, let's drown all the babies that are mixed race or something like that was in there. It was just bantering back and forth. Nobody was offended that he was responding to this too. The banter was on some social media, yes. a private chat kind of thing? Yeah, yes. Okay, so those got in. And it's and, kind and of interesting. More, and everything was released after the trial to put it like a nail, one more nail in my son's coffin of things that had nothing to do with all of it is out of context because the person he responded to, none of their social media was exposed. So it's only so one So they're only saying his answers, not knowing what he's responding As, to. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, th this is, again, a prosecutor who is just going to get this guy. That's his, you know, and actually, I, I had this conversation with, um, you know, I, in California, I practice law in a major law firm. Uh, I had a good friend who was a DA. She was a prosecutor. She's a great woman. Anyway, she would make the point that, you know, uh, as she's prosecuting a case, you know, the defense's job is to get your guy off, period. The prosecutor's job is never supposed to be get a conviction. I know that is what it is, appears to be, but the prosecutor's job is actually to seek justice and to be keep your eyes open, your thought open to, even during the course of a trial, if you begin to recognize, hey, there's this other evidence here that kind of sure. calls into question my theory of this case, calls into question my, you know, uh, what charge, whether a jury should find this person guilty. I mean, there's just, there's a duty of a prosecutor different from the duty of a defense lawyer. The prosecutor's job is to seek justice, which in some cases may mean actually deciding in the course of the trial to reduce charges, to even drop the case. They're supposed to seek truth justice, not just seek convictions. And you get the sense from this case that this prosecutor decided, I ran on getting this guy. I'm going to keep evidence away that I don't want the jury to hear. I'm going to let things in without a full context. It just has a, I'm, I'm tired of the word witch hunt, but I'm, it has an agenda-driven vengeance feel to it about this case. So, uh, Greg Abbott, our great governor, uh, okay, our governor of Texas, said at the time he was going to, uh, as quickly as possible, he was going to seek to uh, pardon your son, but he's required to get first a report from the, I think it's Bureau of Paroles and yes. whatever it's called. Yes, the Bureau, the, 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 the parole board. The parole board, yeah. That he's actually elected the, the people on the parole board. So. He appointed them. Yes. yes. And okay, he so. He has to hear from them first, prior, but I mean, if I can get any, uh, letters written or anything written to the parole board requesting my son's release that would be wonderful as well okay yeah. that was one thing i was going to ask you and i didn't know the answer to this very moment so governor abbott said he was going to seek uh to pardon this person but uh, daniel perry but he has to first get a report from a board a parole board which he appoints all the members of 
Uh, and then the governor's office has been pretty quiet in the last, uh, since this time. We're, yes. we're now, um, I don't know how many weeks actually we are after, but we're getting to the Over end of month. May. Yeah. And so uh, there is a desire, if you feel concerned about this case, to contact. You can submit a, re a, a letter to the Texas Board of Paroles. Texas Board of Paroles. And you know what, folks, I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to find that out and I'll tell you in the next show because I don't know how to do that right now. But I think letters that just encourage them because I think it's amazing to think, and I, I say this in so many contexts, you know when your kids are growing up, you teach them, don't succumb to peer pressure. Think for yourself. Reason for yourself. Find your own facts. This peer pressure, this desire to go along to get along, to not fight the left-wing narrative, this peer pressure and this massive leftist push in this country, mm -hmm. anti-police uh, mentality, it really has actually impacted cases. I truly believe the judges in the federal court system in Washington, D.C. are swayed by what everyone has told them they're supposed to think about January 6th defendants rather than the facts in, this, in those cases, rather than the rule of law, rather than stepping back and looking at the vengeance the DOJ has embraced and going after these people. Peer pressure impacts everyone, even judges, even lawyers, even prosecutors, even people in the parole board in Texas. So if you're so inclined, I will get an address and tell you where you could send your comment. One last thing, is there any other way people can help you? Um, basically just a lot of prayer, prayer, and just writing to the parole board uh, requesting for my son's release. Um, the more this goes international, the better we are, because it seems like his case has been swept underneath the carpet here and not enough people are responding to it, know about it. Um, I just pray that, you know, this will resolve itself and, and he, he's innocent. I would not be here sitting here trying to defend the son if he was guilty or if he was malicious anyway, but social media actually convicted my son you know, he was convicted by the social media more than anything else. Yeah, I, I, I give a little bit of credit too to the mindset of George Soros and getting prosecutors yeah. in who just don't, they don't have this, let's have a neutral rule of law that applies to everybody. Because if they did, they would have been prosecuting the people who uh, were attacking the car, prosecuting the person who shot at the car, prosecuting other people who were in any way violent. Yes. But all that really seemed to happen in those massive protests of 2020, uh, those kind of people, even arrests were made, prosecutions didn't happen. And, you know, I will say another comment about the police down there. This really began even when I mentioned earlier when Donald Trump was running in 2015 and 2016. And he would plan some event, you know, some big rally, whatever it was. And I'm not a big rally goer, but, you know, you see them on the news. So, you know, thousands show up, they're at a rally. And early on in Trump's campaign, the left organized against him. It was Black Lives Matter. It was Antifa. Many leftist mob-oriented organizations organized against Trump. They would show up outside. They were screaming and yelling and waving signs, intimidating people who wanted to go in and hear Donald Trump speak. And very few arrests and it happened. And if arrests happened, prosecutions didn't happen. So it was just kind of a, we began this process of giving permission to one political side to do pretty much what they want to do. And that carried over because obviously that was occurring in 2015 and 2016, that the leftist rioters and protesters in this country were kind of treated to a blanket 
different standard than, than other Americans about what will tolerate, what will allow you to do, whether or not you'll be prosecuted. And it really continues to be carried over to this incident in, in July of 2020 in Austin. We have had, you know, you can protest in this country. You can get permits. I, I, I do love, you know, peaceful protest marches. It's part of the First Amendment. I love it. But you get permission for where you can march. You're told, yes, you can march on this street or in this park, whatever it is. Your permit tells you where you can go. And, you know, you can wave, you can give speeches and wave flags or wave signs. But we've allowed in this country the standard of justice, standard of what's permissible as to protests, to be different, a different standard applies if you're on the anti-American left, which is you can pretty much do what you want. You can disrupt, break things, burn things, burn buildings, and nothing happens to you. And so really, uh, as protests continue, like right now we're at a fairly peaceful phase, but as protests uh, otherwise occur, you know, the, we have taught the more violent left that you really don't have to comply with the way we do ordered liberty in America, the way we have a First Amendment and freedom of speech, the rule doesn't really apply to you because after all, you're on the right side, you're on the, on the left. And so we're gonna let pretty much everything you wanna do, we're just gonna let it go. And this becomes a danger to everyone in America. Mrs. Perry, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. So great to have you here. And you know what? Same thing has happened as yesterday. Okay, I had, I really was gonna go on some other stories. I want to tell you, uh, and just, uh, and I'm, I'm nearly out of time. My producer's looking at me. Two minutes. Okay, fine. They're so picky here. Anyway, uh, quickly, I want to tell you to go to Patriot Switch. I'll tell you more about it on Monday, but it's a great new thing I have for buying products made in America. Go to PatriotSwitch.com slash Debbie G. There you, oh, look at that beautiful thing. Go to PatriotSwitch.com. We're going to have a better flyer ready for you next time. PatriotSwitch.com or slash Debbie G and start to buy your your products, your home products, your uh, personal healthcare products at a place, products made in America. Much more coming on Monday about that. Uh, I wanted to tell you, and I have so much more about the Durham report, I can hardly stand it, but I can't talk about it anymore because it's time to go. So uh, at the close of every day, every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So today we started with what Soros-funded DAs and secretaries of state like the people going after, who don't go after election fraud in Carrie Lake's case, uh, what they mean for America. Unengaged Americans do not understand the menace that is billionaire George Soros. Soros wants to take down Judeo-Christian America by any means necessary. This is his openly stated desire and goal. I'm not saying mean things. This is what he says about himself. Soros targeted donations to elect local DAs and secretaries of state are specifically intended to control election processes and machinery to assure leftist victories, dismantle law and order in the USA in order to facilitate a shift to totalitarian government that sets aside the Constitution. New York DA Alvin Adams, um, Missouri DA Kim, that's Alvin Bragg, I think, okay. Sorry, we had a little typo there. Alvin Bragg, Missouri DA Kim Gardner, now resigned. Colorado Secretary of State Gina Griswold, Jenna Griswold. All are Soros-sponsored. There are many others. Identifying those who seek America's destruction is key to saving America. Soros-sponsored candidates must be identified and rejected. And I can't do the rest of my slides because I ran out of time to do the show. 
Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I want to invite you to tune in tomorrow, please, on our Thursday show. We have Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joining us in studio. He has been burning it up with a great new podcast and a great new Substack. And he is, uh, he's been on the show many, many times over the nine years I've done this show. Uh, he's just a wonderful patriot. And uh, we'll talk about all the latest news and stories with him. So tune in tomorrow. Thursday for Lieutenant Colonel Alan West and every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk. Go to americacanwetalk.org to see everything about this show. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear-